Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Are you a high-performing real estate investor who's looking to further elevate your performance? If so, download our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits by joining our insider network at elevatepod.com. This guide created by yours truly has the power to put your transformation on autopilot and exponentially change your trajectory. Go get your free copy now at elevatepod.com. If you're looking to take your business and life to a whole new level and you're committed to investing in yourself, you're invited to apply for one-to-one coaching with me, which you can learn more about at coachwithtyler.com or sign up for the life-changing Elevate High Performance Coaching Academy, where together with our tribe, you'll learn how to elevate your game, make more money and have more freedom. Check out the free masterclass at elevatecoachingacademy.com. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I am blessed and grateful to be joined by Josh Cantwell today. Oh my goodness, today's episode is phenomenal. I just want to invite you to buckle up because today is a great day. In this episode, you are going to learn the three big important philosophies that you need to have in your real estate business, in your personal life. And what that means in terms of hacking your high performance, not only from a you know family perspective and leading your family, but also in capturing massive opportunities in the current real estate market and in the future, because change is the only constant. And how are you setting yourself up for massive success? You are going to learn that today with the great Josh Cantwell. Oh my goodness, Elevate podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal growth for high-performing real estate investors. I am your host, Tyler Chester. I'm a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, the habits, the multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Spit it out, my friend. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. I want to welcome you. I want to invite you to enjoy this conversation with Josh Cantwell. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Josh, who manages over $40 million in private money, which is deployed into multifamily real estate and apartments. He has been involved in over 1,000 wholesale, rehab, rental, foreclosure, and apartment transactions, and currently holds a portfolio of over 3,000 cash flowing apartments. He is the founder and CEO of a variety of successful businesses, including Freeland Ventures and Strategic Real Estate Coach. Josh is a true entrepreneur and prides himself on never having had a boss in his entire adult life. And oh my goodness, there's so much more that I can tell you about this. He's also the host of the Accelerator, Accelerated Investor Podcast, which I've been blessed to be a guest on, which has also hosted past guests like Kevin O'Leary, Barbara Corcoran, Donald Trump Jr., Jack Canfield, Rod Cleef, and J.V. Crum III. And he also lives in Northeast Ohio outside of Cleveland with his wife, Lisa Marie, and their three children, Giolina, Alessandra, and Dominique, aka the Nooch. So without further ado, enjoy this great, great conversation with Josh Cantwell. Josh, welcome to Elevate. How are you? Hey, Tyler. I'm excited to be here, man. I've uh, been looking forward to this for a long time. I'm, I'm doing great this morning. Thanks for asking. 
Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I've also been looking forward to this and really, man, it was a, it was a refreshing few minutes with you prior to starting this podcast. And so I just want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for um, in advance, because I I know we're going to serve a lot of people today, but Josh, if you were to describe yourself the way that your close friends or family members or people that know you best, like what would they say about Josh Cantwell? Um, I pretty pretty straightforward, man. I think I, I know who I am and I know kind of what I project out to the world and what they probably would say. Um, conservative, Christian, entrepreneur, father, leader, sports fanatic, right? So that's, that, that's, uh, that's what it's going to come down to. Like, you know, I have, I have good groups of old friends, right? Like some of my closest friends are guys I met in second grade. And I know there's this concept, you know, that like you, you are a, you are, you know, the, the blend of the top five people that you hang out with. Uh, in my scenario, that's really not the case. Um, I, I hang out with a lot of grade school buddies, high school buddies, college buddies. I certainly spent a lot of time in business with elite entrepreneurs and super high performers. But outside of my business life, like I hang out with the, the parents that my you know, kids go to school with their kids. Uh, and they're in a totally different economic environment that I'm in, totally different net worth that I have. Um, and so I've, I've made a point of treating my business life in business and keeping that in a silo. And then my personal life to be authentic to who I am and the relationships I've had for now 40 years. Um, and so those people that know me best have no clue really about what my balance sheet looks like or my apartment portfolio because I've kept that very personal and uh, I, I want to be who I've always been my whole life, regardless of the success I've had in business. So those people are going to say, Josh is conservative. He's a Christian. He's an entrepreneur through and through. He's a, he's, a, he's an amazing dad and husband. He's, he, he's, he's an, a long-term investor. Um, and the person I am today is the person I've been since probably second or third grade. I haven't changed much other than the gray hair and beard. I'm same same dude for the last 40 years. So I think that's what they'd say. I'd hope so anyway. That's awesome. And I love the way that you've just really integrated your upbringing with who you are now. And obviously you continue to, you know, stack on new learnings and new experiences to continue to improve your lifestyle and the way that you can give to other people while also remaining true to who you are as an individual, which is really powerful. Could you tell me a little bit about your upbringing and sort of what that looked like to kind of bring us to what you just described? Yeah. Interesting. You know, um, I grew up in, I think, a very classic, you know, lower middle class upbringing. We grew up in a 1,200 square foot ranch with an unfinished basement. I had two older brothers, a dad that hustled. He worked at Sherwin-Williams and he worked in the insurance business. Uh, my dad filed for bankruptcy when I was in sixth grade. He, they never told us. We had no idea that that was going on. They were very private, but uh, so I didn't know when I was still playing sports with my buddies and out back playing kill the carrier and baseball and basketball that my parents were going through some really hard financial times. Um, but I was very fortunate that my dad in, in my late grade school, early high school years latched on at an insurance company, became a very high performing salesman, ultimately became a partner and ultimately took a piece of that insurance business, spun it off. Property and casualty insurance company that had an employee benefit, small employee benefits division, Tyler. So, this is where the entrepreneur uh, kind of DNA came from for my dad and for me. My dad spun off that 
part of the financial services business and started an employee benefits company, grew it from two employees to 40 employees, bought out eventually his business partner while he was putting the three of us through private high schools and private colleges. Uh, my dad would work, you know, it would take me to school, drop me off at 7.30 in the morning, would get home around 7, 7.30 at night. Um, and my dad became the, the, the kind of patriarch entrepreneur of the family. Uh, so much so that all my, me and all my brothers have become entrepreneurs. Uh, we all work for ourselves. And so it's really the classic American story of the guy that's raising a family and struggling, uh, filing for bankruptcy. And within really six years of that, built a multi-million dollar business, afforded to put us through school, bought a second home, a condo down in Hilton Head, bought a third car, this Thunderbird that he was so proud of. Um, and, you know, it really, I watched that. And so my lesson as an entrepreneur didn't come from books and tapes and seminars. It came from watching my father and how hard he worked and how much he had to think and the people that he had to recruit and hire. Um, I watched that as a distance. It was the ultimate lesson as an entrepreneur to see somebody else that you love and really, uh, that you really admire, uh, for him to put in the work to do that was amazing. And so I grew up very middle class. I would say today I still operate very middle class um, because I think it's what my father would want. I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. And and that's so powerful to be able to have a front row seat to that experience. And it's almost like, you know, it's it's like the rags to riches almost story in some ways. And you were you saw it in action. So you didn't have to read about it in a book. You could actually right. see how it worked. And so obviously that inspired you to move your life forward in a controlled capacity or or, or under your control and under your intention and direction, which I think is really exciting and inspiring. So could you talk about, you know, your trajectory from there in terms of stepping into real estate and what that looked yeah. like? Yeah. So, you know, just watching my dad operate when I was in college, I jumped into internships in business. I did internships at insurance companies. I did an internships at my dad's company. Uh, I ultimately got going when I was a senior in college. I played college football at a small division three school. Um, and I took an internship with uh, a financial services company. I got my series six, my life and health license. And I followed my dad's footsteps into financial services, but I became a fee-based financial planner. So imagine I'm 21. I know nothing about money. I've got nothing but college debt. And I'm like, I'm going to be an all commission salesperson, financial planner. And my dad almost killed me. It's like, <laughs> what? I, like, so I'm like, dad, like I'm following your footsteps. What I've been observing about entrepreneurship. My dad thought I would get a job, you know, in sales, selling pharmaceuticals and a salary and bonus. And here, like, I remember getting my first commission check when I was 21 years old, it was two grand and thinking it was all the money in the world, right? And it was the best thing I ever did. I, I, now I'm 44 years old. I've never had a boss in my entire adult life. Uh, I've never worked on a W-2 for someone else. I've only hustled for commissions, equity, profit, sales, built my own teams, uh, I've never, uh, you know, had somebody tell me what to do and offer me a paycheck every two weeks. Um, and so it came from that. And so my trajectory was I got into financial services. I loved the hustle game of making phone calls, cold calling, getting referrals, meeting with people. Uh, ultimately, that came to an end because, Tyler, I was I got sick of getting porched. Right. So getting porched means that 
when you have an appointment with a client at eight o'clock at night and you walk up to their door or their business and you knock on the door and it's pouring rain outside and they don't answer the door. So you're <laughs> sitting on the porch at eight o'clock at night and you're like, this stinks. Like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. So I fell in love with real estate, Tyler, because a lot of my financial services clients did not have their largest assets in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. They owned apartment buildings. They owned the buildings. They leased them out to restaurants. They had a residential portfolio. I took notice of that. And some of my guys would be like, yeah, I'll buy insurance products from you, Josh, but I'm not going to give you any money to put in the market because all of my free cash, I buy buildings or I buy assets or I buy rental properties. I buy apartment buildings. I took notice of that at 24 years old and, and bought my first duplex. I bought my first investment property, a property I still own today. And, um, and so I fell in love with that. And then I started attending events and seminars and just fell in love with real estate. By the time I was 27, I quit, quit that job, a very high six-figure paying financial services firm um, where it was all commission. I had $30 million under management and I walked away from it to jump into real estate full-time. And so I would say this was all a very organic. None of this was planned in advance. It was just like one step in front of the other. I learned a few things about myself or I learned a few things about the market. But all that time, the backbone of what I was doing was really started with entrepreneurship with my dad, with that example that he set long ago. I love that. And it's so cool because, you know, it's almost like when you take action, you know, your path unfolds and it, and it mm -hmm. becomes more clear and you have to be open for that input and open for those opportunities to inspire you to take action. What's going to make best sense for your future. And I, I almost think about my background in a similar capacity because I got started as a real estate agent and I had no idea that I was going to become involved as a real estate investor. And I started to see the people who were really living the life that I wanted were those who were investing in income producing real estate, similar to what you were saying. And, and I love that you were able to view some of the most successful financial people in your world. And you're starting to see some patterns in terms of investing and in, in participating in real estate. But I'd be curious, I know my answer to this, but I'd be curious, why did you choose apartments specifically as your asset class yeah. to continue to jump off? Uh, it, totally by happenstance, Tyler, frankly. Um, I started in, in 2004, and, you know, even though I was a financial planner, I didn't have a lot of extra free cash. I put money in the market, but I also spent money like an idiot and, <laughs> you know, just was, was having a great time as a, as a middle twenties, but I did buy, you know, several houses and several rental properties and owned my own house and things like that, that I also rented out because it was a duplex. But, um, truth be told, when I jumped into real estate, I needed to still make money and my business partner. He had a wife and two or three kids. He needed to make money now. We couldn't just invest for the long term. So we started flipping properties. We started wholesaling residential properties. We did that. We we're very successful at it, so much so that we started doing huge seminars when the market crashed in 2008. We had already been investing in pre-foreclosures and short sales and foreclosure properties starting in 2006. So, you know, we did live events in Vegas with three, four, five hundred people. We did uh, we did launches. We sold thousands and thousands of copies of our books as residential investors. What ended up happening, Tyler, long story short is I got sick in 2011. I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer out of nowhere. I literally was at work one day, came home, was laying on the floor, playing with my, my kids, uh, wrestling with them. I looked up at the ceiling, crossed my hands across my chest and my, my stomach. And I felt this giant lump 
on the left side of my stomach. And I was like, oh crap, like that, that can't be good. Like that, that's weird. That's in a weird place. Um, buddy of mine across the streets, an orthopedic surgeon. I played college football with him. I said, Hey, his name was Latul Farrell, Dr. Latul Farrell. I said, Hey, Latul, check this out. He's like, yeah, man. He's like, that's not a hernia. Like that, that's not good. That's in a weird spot. It's in a weird shape. Um, and so ultimately I, I was diagnosed with, with pretty advanced pancreatic cancer, same exact diagnosis as Steve jobs. So, um, you know, we all know Steve jobs passed away, you know, about six months, a year after he was diagnosed. So I was, you know, young and thinking, Oh my God, like, um, my, my business is going to be an upheaval because I'm going to have to go through some massive treatment program here. We already had two kids already three and under my wife was eight months pregnant and I thought, Oh my God, like my life is possibly going to end here. Right. And so super long story short, I had a massive surgery. Dr. Matthew Walsh saves my life on the operating table. Wow. Takes a massive cancer tumor, the size of a basketball out of my stomach, takes my stomach, my gallbladder, my spleen, most of my pancreas, a big chunk of my liver reconstructs the arteries so much. So Tyler, that this becomes a case study that the Cleveland clinic, which is one of the top four hospitals in the world, their surgery department studies my case for an entire quarter, like how they took me apart and put me back together. Um, Dr. Walsh saves my life on the operative, basically performs a miracle. So much so Tyler, that business wise, I'm out of work for six months and realize that I'm making no money because I was a transactional real estate investor, mm -hmm. flipping houses. I, I owned a commercial, I had a, I had a brokerage at that time. We had realtors that were selling houses. I was still wholesaling some properties. I had built a decent sized rental portfolio, but it wasn't covering all my bills. It wasn't covering everything that I wanted to accomplish. And so much so that I came back and realized, wow, I had made a giant mistake. Um, but my experience was still in residential real estate. So what I started to do now to get more into the commercial space was I started actually recruiting and raising private money into a fund that we then turned around and lent out to both residential and commercial investors. And so now I started to see commercial deals. I started to see small apartment buildings, small office buildings. We were, we were uh, you know, private money and hard money lending on residential and small commercial portfolios. And we started brokering. So this is again, super organic, right? It's just one foot in front of the other. It's not like I went to study uh, you know, an apartment guru or study, matter of fact, I've never bought an apartment investing training of any kind, but now I own 3,500 units of $300 million portfolio. I've never been through an apartment training from anybody else. So you can learn a lot by just paying attention to the market and just paying attention organically to what's going on. So I really got to see a lot of commercial deals by being a lender, started underwriting and reviewing deals, making loans. And then it became an issue of, we had investors in this fund, they're getting great returns. They started saying, Josh, well, these are great returns. What else, can, what else do you have? Like, what else can we invest in? And I had a couple of buddies investing in apartments and they needed equity. They needed equity partners. They needed more money, down payment, underwriting help, First mortgage lending, we were doing all of that. And sure enough, we started investing as a general partner, co-sponsoring and co-syndicating their loans, right? So again, another organic play, not 
specifically jumping in and saying, we're going to owner operate or even find deals. We're going to work with relationships and partners, which is what we started to do. So much so that back in 2017, then we, we really got focused on apartment buildings. We were kind of running this fund. It was 50% of our business. We started investing in apartments was 50% of our business. Fast forward a little bit more organically, Tyler, COVID hits, bang, all of a sudden lending markets in upheaval. Last March, we stopped lending. We decided to shut the fund down and exclusively focus on our apartment portfolio. And all of a sudden now you see cap rates compressing, interest rates going down. You see people flocking to apartments to rent them, to renovate them, to build them. So we got into apartments, you know, four or five years ago, uh, but COVID forced us to really get where we wanted to go anyway, which was 100% all in full time on apartments. We had already kind of been there, but running this fund on the side also. And so again, another organic situation happens. I think the lesson here for high performers is that you can't just stay in one lane permanently. I've been constantly morphing, changing, listening to the markets, listening to other experts, figuring out what was important to me, to my wife, to my kids, to my business, constantly making new decisions about direction changes. Okay. Like we're not free to lay. We don't sell Doritos, Cheetos, Fritos, uh, and Lay's chips to masses of people around the world and just do that. Right. I'm an entrepreneur, small business entrepreneur. So we've had to morph, change, think, hear what's going on in the marketplace and constantly be changing to the point now where now we've landed exclusively investing in value add B class apartments in the Midwest, the South and the Southeast. That's all we do. And we have a massive portfolio doing it. So, you know, I wish I could tell you that this was something I jumped into was super successful. It's been a 25 year journey, my friend. It's been a 25, you know, 20 to 25 year journey to land where we're at. But now at 44 years old, we've, you know, we've done an amazing thing. We've built an amazing portfolio. Uh, but it's been constantly learning, constantly listening and making pivots every step of the way. Okay, Josh, are you kidding me right now? What just happened <laughs> is unbelievable. I mean, the, the story that you just shared with us, I mean, every single listener to this podcast has got to go back and re-listen to that because what you're talking about is a victor and not a victim, right? This is the, everything that you just shared. I mean, first of all, I feel grateful to be having this conversation with you because, I mean, what you experience in terms of learning the news of being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and being the model for how that is really, you know, how surgeons can overcome this challenge across the world and how people who receive that diagnosis can overcome this across the world is amazing. And so I'm just so, first of all, I'm so grateful to be having this conversation with you. And second of all, I think it's such a great example to other people to say, well, wait a minute, what is life giving me right now, right? What, what, what gift am I being given by some news that may seem bad to me right now? And the gift that you were given in that circumstance was recognizing that, hey, wait a minute, first of all, let's be grateful for every day. Second of all, right. let's look around and say, well, what, what systems have I developed and are they really serving my life? Are they really serving the people around me or are they not? And you looked at this as, as an opportunity to pivot into a more advantageous life where it wasn't transactional focused. And I, I love that. And I think about also as you continue to progress, as you continue to learn and evolve, which I think is, is absolutely a huge takeaway that every single listener has got to take on right now is 
what are you being called to evolve into right now? What are you being called to learn and grow from right now? Because it's never going to be the same. Like the only constant is change. There's so much value to what you shared there. And I'm like you, it's, I just, I love what multifamily real estate can do as a vehicle. And so a lot of the things that you've talked about here is really not only that constant learning, but the evolution, not only listening to your own circumstances, but external and evolving. And one of the things that I think is important, and you, you mentioned even 25 years, it's taken you 25 years to get to where you are now. And I know that you're continuing to evolve and, and listen and learn and grow. So how are you paying attention to the market dynamics now? And what does that look like for you? And how are you evolving in the moment as we speak? Yeah, yeah, great question. So, you know, we're, we're really paying attention. We've built some amazing relationships over time, some close friends with the VP of market economics at auction.com. Uh, they're primarily a residential, uh, you know, uh, data analytics company, as well as obviously selling properties on their platform. Uh, but, you know, I'm constantly in touch with him. His name is Darren Bloomquist. Uh, I interview him once you know, a quarter, or sometimes more often for my podcast to see what's going on in Resi. Uh, because if you think about what happened back in 2008, what took the banks down was not commercial real estate. It was not apartment real estate. It was the bad residential lending that led to the banks basically almost going bankrupt, which then affected commercial real estate. Right. I feel like in commercial real estate, banks make great loans. They're lending at 75, 80% of the value. They're lending on cash flow. They're lending on you know, deals that make sense and operators that make sense. So I don't feel like commercial real estate is any, ever where the banks are going to go down or the economy is going to you know, really, really struggle. Where it's going to happen is it's always in residential. The residential market is so much bigger than commercial. There's so much more loans there anyway. So I'm paying attention to what's happening in Resi because if there's something wrong in Resi, that's going to affect me as a, as a multifamily investor. Um, and so I look a lot at those uh, data, that those statistics. I'm obviously paying very close attention right now with what the Biden administration is doing with stimulus money, giveaways, because that is going to impact, it's going to create inflation. Inflation is going to make interest rates go up, which is going to make cap rates go up. That's going to have a big impact. But if you buy uh, a, a stable asset, or buy something that you can value add that can be stable. My biggest problem right now, Teller, that we're trying to solve for constantly is refinance risk. It's the number one thing right now, refi risk and CapEx risk, those two things. So CapEx risk is, is constantly ongoing. If you're buying a building, it's value add, you're gonna put a million bucks into it. You have contractor risk, you have CapEx risk, you have risk for the cost of materials. So right now we're not developing anything new because the cost of lumber is up 350%. We're not doing anything like that, but we're paying attention to the cost of drywall, the cost of materials. We do expect that stuff to go up because there's more money in the system because of all the stimulus that's going to force uh, inflation. It's just going to happen. But what also happens when there's inflation is if you own physical assets like multifamily real estate, it's going to force the value of that real estate up. So, one of the things you can do right now is buy physical assets and let this government stimulus take you for a ride right. because values are just going to go up over the next three to five years. They are so much stimulus money in the system. It's inevitable. Look at history. It's always happened. The, the price is going to go up. So we know our value of our real estate is going to go up. But these two risks, Tyler, is most important to me right now. As I record this today, we're having conversations with our lenders, with our brokers, with our contractors around the price and the cost of CapEx and the refi risk. 
So what we've come across now is several banks. Well, this is a product that we really like, which is helping us insulate our deals. Products where maybe we get a lower loan to value up front. Maybe I've got to recruit more LP capital into our deals. But they're bank products where it's, it's a one-year interest-only loan, uh, three and a quarter, three and a half percent, 75% loan to value or 80% loan to value. It essentially acts as a bridge loan with a conversion to permanent financing. So I don't have to refi with another bank or another lender. I don't have to go through that. I can convert once I'm at stabilization and I've got my, my rental income up where I want it to be at pro forma. I can get that loan pivoted right with the same bank internally. I don't have to go through a refinance pivot into it's, it's 25 year am it's not 30 year am but it eliminates refi risk right where i know this lender wants the asset they've told me they want to keep this money in play long term they don't want to refinance they don't want me to pay it off and i'm telling them well i don't want to go refinance with another bank i want to keep the terms but i want to pivot into permanent financing so that product has given me a lot of confidence to know i can execute my value add plan i can bump my rents I can hit pro forma, but instead of refinancing with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or going to another company or going to CMBS loan, I can refi with the same bank. Now, I may still refi with Fannie or Freddie, but it gives me the option to know I'm not going to lose my freaking building in the refi, right? Even if I don't hit my numbers, I can still refi with the same bank because you know the value is going to go up and their loan to value is staying the same. So they're, they're at a smaller loan to value. That to me is huge right now. If you're a multifamily operator owner, you're buying buildings, you've got to make room for possible increase in cap rates, increase in interest rates over the next two to four years. Because, you know, our government, unfortunately, is on a wild spending spree right now. And if that continues, that's the inflation's going to happen. That's the number one risk right now. You got to make plans for it. Hey, guys, just a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, and you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I want to invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook that's called the bottom line, the 10 ways to increase cash flow in an apartment complex. And I want to tell you that this is a value packed ebook. So I want to, want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're going to get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com and enjoy the rest of the show. 
no doubt about it. That's, there's so much value in what you just shared. Thank you for that, Josh. I, one thing I'm, I'm curious as to how you guys are really navigating is, you know, everything that you just you just shared, I, I completely agree in terms of inflation and as well as the reflection of that inflation being felt in assets and the risks that you just shared. So I think that's really important. But how are you identifying hidden value right now? Because I think a lot of our colleagues in the industry share your sentiments. And of course, with that, we're seeing compressed cap rates, compressed yield yields across the landscape, high competition. So how are you identifying hidden value and using that creative mind of yours to navigate? Yeah, I think part of it starts with just where you're investing, right? So we're willing to invest in the Midwest. We're willing to invest in the Rust Belt instead of competing in the Sun Belt, right? The Sun Belt is super competitive. Now, we just bought a 552 unit in Houston. We paid 70 million bucks for it. It's going to pencil out at 105 million. Uh, we just bought actually yesterday, 104 unit also in Houston, it's caddy corner to the other building we own. Um, and we're going to ride the wave there because of the population migration. And because there's so many jobs and things in that Houston market, this is specifically in the spring branch submarket of Houston. So, um, but the stuff that we own or operate locally with my team, we look at, uh, everything from large to small. Our portfolio is built off of 200 unit tranches of, 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 of deals. So our model is built. We need 200 units in an area for a property management company to come in and manage that or we manage it ourselves. That gives us one and a half to two property managers. It gives us two maintenance guys and it gives us the opportunity. So we will look at smaller assets. Like I just, I just bought a 552 unit for $70 million. I also just made an offer on a 23 unit, okay? Oh, wow. Because it fits the portfolio so that I can have economies of scale in those areas. So some places we have to find value by finding fractured deals or smaller deals that we can, that are in, you know, maybe a five or 10 or 20 minutes around each other and pull those together. Because in that mom and pop space, that 30 unit to 80 unit space or that 20 unit to 100 unit space, there's always going to be yield. There's always going to be spread. When you're up in that 500 unit type of asset, like I talked about earlier, it's going to be a lot more competition, a lot more multiple offers, those kind of things. So where are we finding still, where are we finding value to add? Well, first of all, for sure, in amenities, right? Whether it's lockers in the basements, whether it's, uh, you know, an uh, in, in easier laundry experience. We're looking at one building now, we're actually looking at putting an up and down laundry next to the kitchen. So maybe even adding in-unit laundry, uh, which the, the, the competitors we have in that market, they're offering in-unit laundry. So can we offer it that as a value-add opportunity? Is it amenities like bike racks, dog parks? Uh, is it in adding pergolas and outdoor LED lighting so people can sit outside and have that like that like, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's an area in Cleveland called East 4th Street where you got that alley feel. There's bars all the way down both sides and lights hanging across and it's somewhere people want to hang out. So where can you offer a resident an experience that they're not going to get somewhere else? I think when the competition is as hard as it is right now, you have to pay attention to the little amenities that a resident can, you, you can give them. Laundry, lockers, dog parks. Everybody seems to have a dog now. And dog parks, yes. um, those those types of things. And of course, upgrading every single unit that we have, right? So we're getting into brand new cabinets, LVP flooring. 
know, really providing that. So we're looking for deals that need a significant value add. And I'm not talking about, see, in the Midwest, our definition of value add, Tyler, is totally different than if you're in the Sun Belt, their definition of value add. In the Sun Belt, these properties already have granite. They've already got backsplash. They've already got like chocolate or white shaker, you know, cabinets. They're already beautiful. And those guys are saying, what's value add? Mm. My definition of value add is this property has not been updated in 25 or 30 years. It still has old yellow subway tile in the bathroom. It's got old carpet. It's got, you know, uh, it, 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 the, the toilets, the vanities, the, the, these things haven't been updated in a while. And we're willing to go in and do a significant construction upgrade with the modernization of all the units. Finally, the experience, right? So just yesterday I was on site at one of my buildings and we make sure that every single time a maintenance ticket is performed, the maintenance tech has the resident sign off on the maintenance ticket when they're done, bring it back. The property manager then calls the resident, make sure that the work was done, they're happy. Then we send out a survey right behind that and ask for survey. So if you want to have a great value add opportunity and create value, it's not just about what you can give the resident, but it's also about the experience, right? Those two things. You can't always just win by creating a better product because lots of people have great products. What about the experience, right? When somebody walks into a unit and then you're on the phone with that resident and you care about them and the property managers really give a crap. That really matters in today's market. Those little that's, things. I'll tell you what, it resonates with me in a big way. I mean, you think about going to a restaurant, it is such a difference when you have great service and you have mediocre average or maybe even slightly above average service. It makes such a huge difference. Even if you've got like the best steak you've ever had, if your server, the manager, the wait staff, everybody treats you with, you know, purpose and intention and they really care about you and they show you that you care. I mean, that just resonates with me and it really makes makes me think about the experience that we're creating for residents or occupants of our properties. At the end of the day, we're adding value, not only from a physical perspective, but from an experiential perspective. I think that's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Josh, I want to transition and I want to switch gears just slightly. I want to talk about your personal investing philosophy with your background and with your experiences and with, you know, some of the challenges that you've overcome, you know, not only from a health perspective, but personally, obviously you've developed really your, your philosophical set of systems that I'd love to talk about. You were, te you were telling me a little bit about this uh, earlier before we started your personal economic system and your scheduling and high performance hacking. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and, and what that means? Sure. Um, so a couple of things that are really important to me, like when you're a cancer survivor at a young age, you realize that you may not have tomorrow. So you've got to operate at a high level today and you've got to identify what's important to you. So what's important to me is I know my seventh grade daughter is in high school. She is not going to give a crap about her father. She is going <laughs> to go run around with her girlfriends and she is going to look at dad as just an ATM. I know that's coming. So I, I had a friend of mine tell her, I think this is important. I had a friend of mine, it's about five, six years ago, tell me that you think you have your kids till they're 18 or 25. You have them till they're 12. Wow. And I was like, this is my friend, Kyle tells me this. Kyle, what do you mean? 
He's like, dude, he's like my daughter. She loves me. She still comes and sits on my lap. She gives me a hug. But if she has a choice between hanging out with mom and dad and hanging out with her girlfriends, as soon as she turned 12, she was gone. She decided 99 times out of 100, she wouldn't go with her girlfriends. So I took that very seriously. And I thought, you know, if I work when they're young, then when they're teenagers, they're not going to want me. And then when they're 20, they're going to be out. They're going to be college and gone. So I've really got until they're 12. Well, luckily I've got right now a 12 year old, I've got an 11 year old and a nine year old. So I've paid attention. So I built my life around them, built my life around that. And so to me, I looked at, okay, how am I going to structure my day to make sure that that's a win? So when I was sick with cancer, one of the things I realized is that way before everybody went virtually, Tyler, I started working from home and I was hyper efficient working from home. So today my system looks like this. We get up every day at six. I'm out of the door with my kids by 7.10. I drop my kids off at school at 7.30. I come home I go to, and I work out in my home gym every day as often as I can. My day doesn't start until nine o'clock, okay? So I, I work out at home. I get in my hot tub. I take a shower. I'm ready to roll. First meeting starts at nine. Now, people will say, well, you're not working until nine. It's not true. From 7.30 to nine, when I'm in the gym is when I do my best thinking. Right. Bill Phillips, the CEO of Body for Life and uh, an AES sports nutrition said, I never got a great idea by actually thinking about it. So true. He said, I got into the joy of my day. I was in the shower. I was on the toilet. I was playing pool with my buddies. I was going for a jog. I was working out. I, I, the, the moments when we have free time and we're not working is when we can think the best. So that hour and a half to start my day, many people say like, oh, you're goofing off, you're working out. Not true. I actually put myself in a position to think for an hour and a half before I get into the muck, before I get into the dirt. So that's the big part of it. Then I work from nine, 2.30. My kids get home from school at 2.30, they take the bus home, they come off, they walk into the house. And I know that from 2.30 thereafter, my house is gonna be loud, it's gonna be crazy. My wife's going to come up with stuff she needs. My kid's going to come. So my schedule is pretty loose after 2.30. I try not to schedule a bunch of meetings. So my time to get in the dirt now and really operate with meetings, talking to investors, underwriting deals is from 9 to 2.30. And then after that, schedule has to be loose. I've got to be able to go to volleyball practice. I've got to be able to help my daughter with their homework, these kind of things. Now, if when I'm in like when I'm in sprint mode and we're really growing hard, I might not really work that much after three o'clock or four o'clock until like nine at night, but then I've got to make up the time. I, after I put my kids to bed, I might work from 10 to midnight or 10 to one in the morning. I don't do that as much today because we've got a lot of things and a great team. But when I was in sprint mode after my surgery, I broke my day up almost into two separate days. I was working a lot at night. So, but I built my daily calendar around one, the ability to think, and two, being available to my kids. Now, I'm still just like any other busy dad. Like, I wish I was more available to my kids. I wish I'd be more involved in what they're doing, more involved helping my wife with some things that she's doing. But we have a good, a good, good thing going with me and my wife and her taking care of those kind of things. So, but starts with that thinking priorities, bam, bam. Now, the other piece of this, Tyler, is I broke my week up into two types of days. I've got buffer days. And I've got focus days. So my buffer day, I learned this from Dan Sullivan, strategic coach years ago. He's got a great new book out called Who Not How. Highly recommend it. Still follow all of the stuff. Um, so Mondays is my buffer day where I have 
Nine o'clock in the morning, I have my, my properties meeting, going over all of our, our rents collected, CapEx updates, evictions, all those kind of things. It's kind of a team meeting, right? Nine o'clock. Then I have my marketing meeting at noon, and I've got my operations and cap raise meeting every Monday at two, wrap up by 2.30, couple meetings. I also do all the other muck that has to happen in the business on Monday. Then Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, my team knows that I am unavailable for meetings. I do not take, like, do you have a minute type of phone calls? All that stuff's got to wait till Friday. And then on Friday, we have another group of meetings where I meet with my CFO Friday morning at 9 a.m. We knock out all the financials. It could take up to two hours looking because we have a lot of properties and all the different stuff we have going on. And then on Friday afternoon, midday to the afternoon, all I do is podcasts. We're recording this on a Friday. So Friday, podcasts. I have a coaching call with my coaching students. And again, I'm raising money. And when it gets closer to 2.30, 3 o'clock, again, my schedule starts to loosen up because my kids are coming home. So I might have a podcast or two, but a lot of loose phone calls, calling investors, talking to my team. But the key is thinking every day, 7.30 to 9, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, no obligations. I can just revenue production. I can talk to investors. I can underwrite deals. I have a very loose calendar. I do not like to have like 42 meetings on my schedule, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. That stuff is reserved for Monday and Friday. So much so, Tyler, that if my team schedules a meeting during the week, like it, it, it's, it upsets me. Like I get pissed. Like don't put that on my calendar Tuesday through Thursday, Monday and Friday. That is all. That's when I, it's cause it's a totally different mindset to underwrite deals, walk properties, raise money, talk to contractors, be in your joy of doing deals versus being at home meetings. It's a totally different mindset. So those couple of things for me have been huge in my life. Uh, and I mean, people will call me Tuesday through Thursday and I do not answer the phone if I don't think it's important. I do not respond to emails if I don't think it's important. I save it for Monday, Friday. Then when I respond to them, I can honor them with a well thought out reply instead of a half ass like, uh, what about, you know, Monday and Friday, man. That's when I, that's when I push it all off to. So Tuesday through Thursday, I'm on my own doing my thing. Josh, are you kidding me right now? You just provided so much value. And I think I may have just changed my schedule completely as well. So thank you for blessing us with that. That is incredible. And I just want to encourage Elevate Nation to re-listen to that and take action and apply that in the way that it makes sense for you. Josh, I want to transition into our rapid fire section. We call it the rare air questionnaire. It's all about being uncommon. It's about making uncommon decisions so that you can make your priorities truly a priority rather than just hoping and wishing that that falls into place because that's what you're all about. And I just admire that so much. Josh, if you were to point to two or three of the most impactful books you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? Uh, so Extreme Ownership, Jocko Willink, uh, just because I think so much so that a leader has to take ownership and put people in swim lanes. Uh, and my other new favorite is, again, Who Not How, uh, Dan Sullivan. I can't remember his co-author, but I love it because now when you run a larger business like we do and a larger portfolio, I don't have to solve every problem, but I do have to find the person, the who, that can solve the problem, the how. So I think those are the two that have been most impactful for me. And Who Not How is the most recent one that I really enjoy. The last one is The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. Infinite Game. I'm going through it now, but I'm almost done with it. Um, and it's all about 
making the decisions that will impact companies in an infinite way versus Wall Street, which is so worried about what the you know, results are today, making decisions that will create wealth and income and cash flow forever. I wish I had read that book before my pancreatic cancer experience. So that's the third one is I would recommend all three of those at a very high level. That's great. Thank you for that. We'll put links in the show notes to all three of those books. Um, I've read Who Not How and it's it's amazing. I've got extreme ownership on my bookshelf waiting for me and I'll take a look at The Infinite Game as well. But Josh, aside from our discussion today, what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis? Um, you know, I, I think the biggest way for me to have an impact and in, in, in increase my overall life is through relationships, right? I've, when I started 2000, you know, I didn't really think the relationships with people were that important. When I really went through my cancer, pancreatic cancer experience became more important. Um, today, I realized that people invest with me, not because we always create the highest returns, but because of the relationship. I realized that people refer me deals, not because I always buy it or because I always close, but because of the relationship. And so constantly getting on the phone with people, constantly reaching out, constantly saying hi, constantly being proactive in relationship building is huge. Um, you know, that, that to me, if I, if I have a day, uh, you know, for me to pick up the phone, text people, send emails, just to, Hey, how you doing? I was thinking about you type stuff. Um, that's, that's huge for me. Uh, the other piece is that, you know, I wish I did a better job, but I know that when I do it, it really impacts my life, which is my health and fitness. Um, you know, the days when I work out, like I worked out this morning and I didn't feel like working out, but I did it. I can tell my day is going to be on fire. You know what I mean? It's, I'm going to have a great day. I can tell the attitude I'm in, the joy that I'm in having this conversation with you, Tyler is so fun. I'm going to have a great day. Days when I've kind of like skip my workout and kind of eat like garbage or eat too soon in my day. I'm not a, I'm not one of those uh, intermittent fasters, but I do know that if I eat too early in the day, that it's going to drag me down. So talking with people, working out and thinking elevates my life every day when I can do it. That's beautiful. Thank you for that share, Josh. What's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? Uh, You know, I think at this point, I think I'm a pretty mature business owner. So it's helping people in a respectful way, understanding when they're out of their swim lane or we can, they can do something better. It's kind of recognizing blind spots in our business and in others and pointing it out to them in a respectful way not talking down to them, not telling them that they suck at their job, but pointing it out to them and saying, Hey, have you thought about this? And then the way I do it is I use the words I would suggest. Mm, That's so good. I would suggest because a suggestion is something that somebody can take or leave. If I say you need to, right, that's a demanding way of saying like, you're screwing up at your job. You suck. You need to do this. The better way of saying is, you know, based on evaluate a situation, gather the information and then make the suggestion. So I would suggest that you try this. I would suggest that you do it this way. Uh, people typically take the suggestion, especially when it's coming from the CEO, sort of have to. But in the way that I say it, uh, I think it's a very respectful way. I actually got that from a friend of mine who uses that same phrase. I wish I could take credit for it, but it's not. I would suggest, and then normal people know that, you know, I I better go try that. I think that's good advice. 
Yeah, words are so powerful and just the way that people feel, right? I mean, emotions at the end of the day are typically our driver. And how are you making people feel? Because like Maya Angelou said, it's not what you said to people. It's not what you did, but it's how you made them feel. And Josh, man, I'll tell you what, this has been a very, very powerful conversation. I just want to acknowledge you not only for contributing in such a big way and that you do in your business, in your life, through your family, but just the presence that you have. I just really am grateful for this conversation, Josh. Is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you share with Elevate Nation today? Um, so I guess really two things, which is funding equals freedom. Funding equals freedom. Uh, funding comes in all different kinds of sources. It could come from debt. It can come from mass equity. It can come from family office. But at the end of the day, there's going to be that last five or 10% of a deal that comes from your truly mom and pop private investors that's the funding I'm talking about. That funding equals freedom. That's what allows you to buy properties, make your final decisions, buy good assets and structure good terms. Funding equals freedom. And the last piece is I would say, look, own the asset. Um, own the asset is, is, you know, to being transactional, being a realtor, flipping houses, flipping buildings is great. But owning the asset it does everything as far as build your balance sheet, create cash flow, reduce your taxes, it does everything you'd ever want. That's the most important thing. Last thing is, is I would tell people, you know, when Dr. Walsh operated on me, I didn't understand the gravity of the operation until about six weeks later. I went and sat with Dr. Ali, who was my oncologist. He sat down, walked in the room, looked at the report like every doctor does on the screen, he sat back, saw his mouth drop open, Tyler. I was like, what is he looking at? Like, what is he, what is he reading? It's obviously a big deal because he's really quiet. You can tell he's thinking like he turned and looked at me and said, you know, Josh, he said, I'll get a little emotional talking about this. But he said, Dr. Dr. Walsh is a daring surgeon. And that resonated with me. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, most doctors would have opened you up, would have saw how complicated it was, how the cancer's wrapped up in all these organs. They would have sewn you up and set you home and said, there's nothing we can do. And I said, so you're telling me that the only reason why I'm really alive today is because Dr. Walsh was daring and tried something that other people wouldn't try. He said, exactly. So I would tell your audience, look, be daring, right? Big solutions, big problems are not solved by people who are meek, by people who are weak. Big problems are solved by people who are daring enough to provide and try and create big solutions. So be daring, go out, try something new. You're going to fail. So what? Be daring because it's those people who try amazing things and try to look at amazingly difficult situations, but they're daring in their effort that provide amazing solutions. So own the asset, funding equals freedom, be daring. Those are the things I would tell your audience. Are you kidding me right now? Josh Cantwell, ladies and gentlemen, what a phenomenal, phenomenal conversation. Amazing advice there at the end. Thank you so much, Josh. Tell the listeners how they can learn more about you and what you do. Yeah, just go to our main website, freelandventures.com. It's got everything. You join our Facebook group, we've got a private Facebook group, our books, see our portfolio, case studies, all that stuff. Go to freelandventures.com. 
definitely uh, going to put links in the show notes into where you can find Freeland Adventure, FreelandVentures.com. Of course, where you can find Josh everywhere on social media as well. But my goodness, you've got to re-listen to the show. There's so much value here. There's so much that you can apply to your life, to your business immediately, whether it's a personal philosophy, business philosophy, investing philosophy, or investing tactics. I mean, my goodness, this one is packed. And Josh, this has been phenomenal. I just really, really want to thank you for being here today. Thanks again for being on the show, my friend. Absolutely, Tyler. I had a blast. You're a great, great interview, man. Thanks for asking all the questions. Thanks for letting me just go off on all these tangents and talk about life and business. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me on. My absolute pleasure, my friend. Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.